Today we uh, dive into the, the first segment or the first topic of our series, Wise Up. Last week we looked at the big picture of wisdom and, and how it's practical, right living. Uh, both that it's right, there's a, a morality to it, and it's skillful in that it actually is doing it, not just knowing about it. And today we're going to jump into the first topic of that in the area of relationships and sexual relationships in, in particular and what God's view is for that. So if you have a Bible with you, let me just orient you uh, to that a little bit. We're going to be in the book called The Song of Solomon uh, for the next six weeks. The Song of Solomon, if you are new with us today or you don't have a Bible with you, if you look in your worship guide uh, where your notes are, the page number listed there will take you to this passage in the hardcover Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. So if you grab one of those hardcover Bibles, I want to encourage you to either bring your Bible, if you have one, talk to us, we can get you a Bible, use one of those in the chairs. Uh, in front of you, but uh, we're going to be in this section or this book for the next six weeks. It's a very important book, and it's good if you can open it up because you can follow along with us and be familiar with where it is uh, in the future as we continue to go through this. So let me give you a little overview, uh, first of all, uh, to this book. Since we're starting a new book, and Song of Solomon is a unique book in the Bible, uh, let me talk about its subject and how it's written, the story behind it, and, and who the author is. And I think that'll help orient us a little bit to this book that's not often talked about a whole lot because of its topic. So the subject, or the purpose of the Song of Solomon, this particular book, is to celebrate and to describe the joys of sexual romantic love. It's a whole book that's designated to this particular topic. And the reason we know it is partly because of the story of it, but if you study the words that are used in it, in the Hebrew language, there's three different words that are used for love. Because each word describes a different aspect of love. So there's a a word that describes unconditional love, uh, like a parent would have for a child, that kind of love, that, that you love them no matter what. There's a word in Hebrew for brotherly love, kind of like between friends or, or people that you just have an affection for. And then there's a word that, that's uh, for sexual love, that's that very sexual, erotic type love. And it's the word, or the Hebrew word, dad. That word is used 39 times in the book of Song of Solomon. In fact, it's the most dominant word for love used throughout this whole book. Those other words are used a little bit as well because all of them are part of it, but this particular book is focusing specifically on the aspect of a sexual relationship and the aspects to it between two people. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, over the next six weeks. I know I got everyone's attention now, so I can pretty much say whatever I want just because I started with that. So let me get into some of the boring stuff that's still important. The literary form of this particular book is a a poetic love song. They would have called it a lyric idyll. Uh, So it's a poem, it's a song that was written based on an actual events, but it's put together just like we'd often put together songs nowadays or maybe a movie about something. It doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. And uh, it's going to capture or highlight aspects of their life. So this song doesn't go in chronological order. It uses very poetic uh, imagery within it, uh, metaphors to describe things, to to touch on the emotional side of love, as well as the actual events that took place uh, in the relationship. So you're going to see that as we go through it. You're also going to see that the song has three characters in it. 
So it's almost like there's three people participating in the song. The, the main characters are Solomon, or King Solomon, as we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, his bride, uh, Shulamite, is, is a part of it as well. It's mainly between those two. And then there's an imaginary chorus, which is a group of people that periodically chime in and sing uh, either something to repeat something, to reiterate something, or to emphasize something. So in the text, as we bring up the text, I'm going to change the text around so you can tell who the speaker is as you go through it. A lot of your Bibles will have it kind of noted as well, but you'll be able to see it in the text as well as we go. So those are the people that we're going to see in here. Now the story behind the song that it's based on is essentially that of King Solomon, who is the king of Israel, the second king, well, the third king of Israel, uh, Saul being the first, but David, and then his son Solomon. And the woman he meets, Shulamite, while he's visiting one of his vineyards in the northern part of his kingdom. Uh, Shulamite's from the Lebanon area, which is the northern parts of Israel, uh, and there's mountains there. There's often vineyards on those mountains. So King Solomon would have taken tours at times to visit some of his different orchards and see how things were going there. And when he did that, he bumped into this young country girl that lived out there, and every time he'd visit, you're going to see that their relationship kind of grew, and eventually he asked her to marry him. Uh, She was a little concerned, like, I'm a country girl, and you're a king, and you're going to take me back to this castle, and I kind of grew up in the country. You're going to see all those aspects of their relationship expressed in this song. And she eventually agrees and becomes uh, his wife, and this story tells uh, that uh, whole kind of story of their life, and it's told from her eyes. So essentially the song is written uh, from her perspective, even though Solomon's the author of it. He tells the story from her eyes, and she's going to reflect in the song of their wedding night. That's what we're going to look at today. That's where it starts. She's reflecting on their wedding night, in particular after the ceremony, and when they uh, go into the chambers and have their first sexual experience. Uh, Then they're going to talk about their courtship. She's going to go back to their courtship and dating period, and then the full wedding, the whole ceremony, and then the early years of their marriage. You're going to see all those things in this song. So, Uh, That's kind of the order in which we're going to take it and talk through it. Now, before we jump into it, I think the elephant in the room we have to talk about a little bit is uh, Solomon. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Solomon and his marriage practices. Because if you've read the Old Testament, you've read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had some problems in the marriage area. And here he's writing a book on this whole thing, and you're going, what's up with that, Chad? So let's talk about that a little bit. Probably what happened, you could assume, is, is you'll see in this relationship, it was probably early on in his life. Solomon, and as he went on in life, even though God gave him great wisdom, he fell away from that wisdom. And a lot of what he writes, in particular in the book of Ecclesiastes, is him going back and, and affirming that, man, I should have listened more to this wisdom because I tried everything else. And when I was all said and done, God was right with the wisdom that he gave us. So Solomon probably met this young girl early on in his life and then later on took on many other wives, which was common in that culture for political reasons. He may not have had very close relationships with all these other wives. It was often uh, for this nation, they'd send a daughter for a political marriage, and so he'd end up having all these wives politically that weren't necessarily close to him intimately in other ways. But this was a particular relationship that he had in his life during this season that was very unique. 
And it's captured in the title of the song. A Hebrew reader would have got this because it's, the title is actually The Song of Songs by Solomon. So the title or the first verse is the title, The Song of Songs. And in the Hebrew language, uh, you guys have seen this in the Bible, when they wanted to emphasize something or, or make something a superlative, they would often double a word. And you see that in the Old Testament a lot when the, the temple is described and the inner court of the temple, which was the holiest place in the temple where God's presence resided. Do you remember the name they would use for that? The Holy of Holies, wouldn't they? That was how they said, this is the most holy place. So what this title is saying is that this is the song of songs. It's the love of loves. It's the ideal of love is what it's talking about. And, and just practically speaking, I think someone who's had like a thousand wives probably could be a good guide for saying, you know what, this is probably the best one right here. I'm going to write a song about this one. And, and God used him, even in his brokenness, he used his wisdom to leave for us a book that talks about what it really should look like, ideally. So that's where we're going to go in the weeks to come is taking a look at this. And today's message is based on a portion of this poetic song in which the woman is reflecting on her wedding night, in particular, as I mentioned, their first sexual union and why it was so specific uh, or special for her. So I'm, here's what I've done. I've, I've trained my, uh, my ushers today a little differently. They all have buckets of water in the back. So if, if you guys get a little worked up today... Okay, just raise your hand. They're going to come up and they're going to just dump a cold bucket of water on you and we're just going to keep plowing through here because it's going to get hot as we get going. I'm just saying, okay? Just, just realize i got to do this three times today, all right? <laughs> Feel sorry for my wife who's got to invite me back into the house after this, right? All right, here we go. Here's, what, here's a big picture that I have for you. I, I believe... This gives us a vision. As she reflects on her wedding night, it's, it can be for us a vision of what romantic sexual love was intended to be for all of us. And I believe a loss of that vision, a loss of that picture in the church for God's people has led to great devastation and harm in our lives. I mean, we don't have to, to go too far to see how our lives, either personally by actions we've taken or those around us, have been hurt by wrong views and a wrong vision of what sexual love was intended to be. And we bear the scars. We all bear the scars. I shared with you last week some of the scars I bear. I'll share more as we go through this of how violating these hurts us. And so what God is putting in this book is a picture, in particular today, a vision of what a godly, healthy, sexual love could look like. And that's what I want you to see today is four key characteristics of a healthy, passionate, satisfying sexual relationship. Four key characteristics that if you will embrace them and you will make them part of your core character values, you will be able to enjoy this gift like very few people on our earth have been able to enjoy it. God invented it. Just remember that. God invented sex. But if we're honest with ourselves, he's usually the last person that we're thinking of when we're considering those things. We tend to think, oh, this is what happens over here, and God, we're going to keep you over here. Understand, he knows every thought and every action you're engaged in. He wants you to enjoy it. 
So today, let's look at what that would look like if we were to find it in all its fullness that he intended. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Song of Solomon chapter 1. We're going to work all the way through this chapter and into the first uh, part of chapter 2. I'm breaking it up into the way it's actually broken up in the song, so we're going to take it that way, uh, and we'll start reading together. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into the first section of this uh, song. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm just going to read it to you, all right? I know you're disappointed. Some of you can leave right now, but... Father God, we do love you and are so thankful that even though we might... um, be uncomfortable or even embarrassed talking about such a a sensitive topic that you write openly about it. That you not only inspired this book through Solomon, but you've preserved it in your word throughout many, many centuries so that we could open it today and understand uh, how good you are and how you want us to enjoy this wonderful gift that you've given us. So Lord, my prayer would be that we would humble ourselves to hear your wisdom. As we learned last week, as wisdom shouts in the streets, that we would not turn from her, but we would turn toward her and hear these right, skillful truths that you have for us so that we might enjoy a gift that you created and you know best how it should be used. That's our prayer this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Song of Songs, which is written by Solomon, or which is Solomon's. This is now her speaking. So I'm going to put Shulamite's text in just regular text. The italicized will be the chorus when this imaginary chorus chimes in. And then Solomon, King Solomon's writings will be in bold on the screen so you can kind of distinguish between who's talking. So she starts off uh, saying this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Let me just tell you what it's saying here. So this first word for love is this sexual romantic love. So she's not just talking about his love in general. She's talking about, you know, shawank, shawank kind of love. You know what I'm talking about? She wants to be with him. I'm just, being, I'm just telling you what the text says, all right? All right. I had to lighten it up here a little bit. She's saying, your love is better than wine. She's using poetic imagery. A wine would have been something that symbolized a party or a celebration. Remember when Jesus first showed up and did his first miracle? It was in Cana at a wedding, and he turned the water into wine because that was common at a joyful celebration. So she's making a powerful statement saying, your romance, your sexual love to me is better than wine and better than a great party. And then she says, why? She says, your anointing oils are fragrant. And that was common in those days to anoint themselves with these oils that would uh, give off a great fragrance. So basically she's saying in a, in a poetic way, man, you smell great, you look great to me. She's saying, your name is oil poured out. So now she's talking about him internally. He says, man, your love is like a party. You smell awesome, meaning you just are attractive to me. And in your name, which was your character, that, that captured all of your character, your name is like oil poured out. And oil in their culture was a major commodity, and it was purified. And when it was poured out, it means you were taking that oil and you were blessing other people with something that was of great value, of great purity. So she's saying your character is a great blessing that pours out on those around you. That's what's awesome. She's talking about how he looks, and then she's talking about who he is. 
And then she goes on to say, therefore, virgins love you. And then she says this, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So they are leaving. They basically left the wedding banquet, and the chambers was his bedroom. That was their bedroom at that point. And they're entering into the first night. She's reflecting back on the wedding night here before she gets into telling the whole story. So here's my first point for you on this one. Let me finish the, the statement. It says, we will exalt you. Here's the chorus. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So the chorus just kind of jumps in and emphasizes that. So here's my first point to you. Real important, real practical. Is I will find satisfaction in my sexual relationship when it is based on both external and internal beauty. When it is based on both external and internal beauty beauty. See what she says here. This is why his love is better than wine. This is why she wants him to kiss him or kiss her with his mouth. This is why she wants him to draw her after him and into the chambers is because he smells, he looks great. For her, for her, he's incredibly attractive outwardly, but he's also deeply attractive inwardly. His character is purified. It's, it's great. It blesses other people around him. She's seeing both of these aspects. And church, we need to understand that both of these are valued by God. We live in a day and age where the world overemphasizes the external beauty in a relationship. It's all about the outward looks. But unfortunately, the church can often swing to the other side and underestimate any external beauty. We could, be, we could look as ugly as we want, but as long as we got good character, it doesn't matter that I stink Honey, I haven't showered in two weeks. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But what I'm saying is that God doesn't make these dichotomies. God says both of these are important. Your character is deeply important. In fact, no marriage should even begin until you've established it on a healthy, godly character. That's the foundation for a relationship. But being externally attractive to each other and, and, and valuing that as well, is part of the romantic sexual relationship as well. Both of those are important. We shouldn't negate either one of them when it comes to our relationships. We need to avoid uh, a marriage that, that just neglects any outward beauty because we're Christians, because it'll become quickly cold and boring and not much different than a commitment you might have at work or with a family member or with any other area of your life. I mean, if we just totally throw out the aesthetic aspect of our relationship and it's just based on commitment, you might as well live with someone you work with or your pet. I mean, you have commitments to them as well. But you don't dress up for your dog. Hopefully you don't. <laughs> Shouldn't say that. It's happening probably nowadays, isn't it? But what I'm saying is that God values both of those things. They're both important to him. So let, let me give you some real practical advice. Let me start with singles for a moment. And here's why it's so important to understand that both of these are important, external and internal. First of all, it takes much longer to identify the internal beauty of a person than it does their external. Okay, keep this in mind. It can take a, a while to determine the internal beauty of a person. This is why it's so important when you're single or in your not season that you don't get too sucked in to the, the feelings of an external beauty of relationship or attractiveness because once you do, it blinds you 
to the flaws that exist in the internal beauty. Are you with me? Okay, as soon as you, and you're going to see a phrase, we're going to talk about it throughout the series, that once you stir up the romantic sexual side, which is not a bad thing, it's a good thing in the appropriate time, but you need to make sure, is my relationship built on both of these? You don't have to just find, well, I won't go there. Once you stir up the physical, you remember the old phrase, is she cute? Well, she's, she's nice, right? Or she's got a great personality, or he's got a great personality. Yeah, but, okay, there's nothing wrong with having both. And different people are going to be attractive to, to different types of people. You don't have to just find someone that has great character and say, well, I guess i got to marry him. They're a great person. You can wait for that physical aspect as well. God says they're both possible. Just look at the world we live in that God created. You can look at creation and you can look in his word and God values and exalts beauty everywhere. He doesn't make it an idol, but it doesn't mean he devalues it. But here he's talking about external and internal. So if you're single, you need to make sure you base it on the internal beauty, which means you need to keep yourself at a healthy emotional distance from someone so that you can examine their character, their inner beauty, and once that's established and you're in the right place, then it's okay to begin to release and be attracted to the outer beauty in a relationship if you've taken those proper steps. Are you with me? Once you let the outer beauty capture you, you will bl- be blind to the inner beauty. Here's the other thing that's so important for singles. Okay? If you examine your life, let's pretend the average person lives to be uh, 80, or I'll just say 100 for a nice round number, okay? You tend to get married in the first quarter of your life, okay? Here's a simple principle, so important. Do not miss this. You are the most foolish you will ever be in the first quarter of your life. (laughs) You guys are laughing because I'm right, aren't you? I don't care if you're here and you're 70. You can go back and go, oh, my goodness, I was such an idiot when I was back then. Here's the thing. You get married in that first quarter, Isn't that just ironic? The the most important decision you make in your earthly life, you do it in the most foolish season of your life. That just doesn't seem right, does it? So here's some wisdom for you. Do not make that decision all by yourself. Do not exclude the people that God has brought into your life who have greater wisdom, not because they're any better, maybe just because they've lived longer and made more mistakes than you have and they've learned from them. The Bible talks about plans failing for lack of counsel. The worst plan that can fail and the most damaging in our life is often our marriage relationship. I want to encourage you. You make it early on. Include people in your life in that decision who love you and have wisdom about relationships, and you will set yourself up for this gift to be the best that it can be. Now let's talk to some married couples, okay? First of all, don't ever stop working on your character. Even though you're already married and and that's there, if you've blown it in this area, start here before you start doing anything else. All the modern sexual techniques and practices that you can bring and and that will be bombarded with to say, hey, this will heat up your relationship. If you've blown it in the character area, don't try to fix it in the physical one. You can still work in those areas and build that foundation before you start fanning the flames elsewhere. It's kind of like building a fire. 
And nowadays, our society says, just squirt some lighter fluid in the pit and light it on fire, and wham, it takes off fast. But it burns out really quick because there's no foundation, and character is you stacking that wood. It takes a little bit of work, a little bit of thought, but you stack it in there, and as you keep stacking it, then you can put a little lighter fluid on it and fan the flames, and not only will it take off fast, but it'll burn for a long time. If that's where you are as couples, start with that foundation. However, don't neglect, and we do this a lot as Christians, don't neglect the external beauty. That's important as well to keep the fans flaming in a relationship. Guys, there's nothing romantic about your body odor and crusty underwear laying on the bedroom floor. I I mean, you can't just yank it off and go, come on, baby, have it, man. It's going to do nothing for you, I'm just telling you. I know, we d- I know your guy friends told you that that's really cool. This is how I do it with my wife. Well, go talk to his wife. <laughs> she doesn't like it either. Okay, and, and let me just say this. Guys, your, your man boobs and your one pack aren't nearly as sexy to your wife as they are to your buddies. I'm just saying it, okay? Just because your buddies think that's sexy, it, it doesn't get you any favors with your wife. Okay, okay, I'm joking around a little bit, but I'm trying to... Be serious at the same time. A couple, you know, you're never going to look as good as you do the day of your wedding, most likely. Your body deteriorates the rest of your life. So don't misunderstand. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Trust me. Here's what I'm saying, though. A couple that makes a commitment to both the internal beauty and external beauty to each other is a couple who will have one of the most satisfying relationships both emotionally and sexually that you'll see it's a couple that won't need to look elsewhere for those things because they're making those commitments to one another and a commitment to your external beauty whatever that may be in in a body that's deteriorating will add to your relationship i'm not saying you have to look like a movie star the rest of your life i'm not talking about an idolatry of beauty i'm just saying how about being the best you for your spouse. How about just trying that? Because often what happens is we offer those things to everyone else. We get all dressed up when we go to work or we get dressed up when we come to church and then we look like slobs for our spouses. And I'm not saying you can't just let down at home, but I'm saying what would happen if we took the value that we see even here and brought it into our relationship and used it as a way to communicate to our spouse, you're important to me. Our relationship is important. I want to be beautiful on the inside, and I'm going to try to be beautiful to you on the outside as well. I'm just saying, God revealed this in his word about them, and both of them are okay when they're held properly in that. Second thing we see is is it goes on. You're going to see here now, Shulamite talked to him, and she's going to express two insecurities in her life, whether she did it at this moment or it's just part of the song, and she's communicating to us through that, here's the two things she's going to see. Listen, and I'll explain them. It says, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So here's what she's saying. She's saying this, and you can pick it up here. Uh, It seems that Shulamite came from a single family. 
She doesn't talk about her father, who would have been a central figure in her home. And she says, my mother's sons were angry with me. Uh, she was required to work in the vineyard. She was outside. And in that ancient Near Eastern cu- culture, especially in the palace, they would have, uh, a value would have been not working and being inside. And so lighter skin would have seen as the, the norm of their culture of greater beauty. It would have been an idol, but it have been the norm of how that society operated. She wasn't that way. She had darker skin because she had to work hard outside. But notice how she says it. She doesn't do it in a demeaning way of herself. She's just stating a fact. She says, hey, don't let these other women who are looking at me and comparing my beauty to theirs. She says, I'm like the tents of Kedar, the curtains of Solomon. She compares herself to something that was of great beauty back then. The tents of Kedar would have been made by the, the wool of goats that were dark-haired goats, and they would have looked very beautiful shining when the light would reflect off them in the evening. The curtains of Solomon, very much the same. So she says, I don't have the beauty of these other women, but I have my own beauty because of my circumstances. And so she's a little insecure about that, and she expresses that to Solomon. We're going to see how he responds later. So here's another insecurity she goes into. She says, tell me whom my soul loves. So she's talking to Solomon here. Where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flock's of your companion. So her second insecurity is, is, am I important to you? Am I a priority to you? And she's, she's talking specifically about his work here. Okay, the king of Israel was often viewed as a shepherd. David was an actual shepherd before he came king. So that became an in- image that was used as uh, describing the king's role back that time. So she's saying, where do you pasture your flocks? Uh, and and will, I, will I have access to you, or will I be like the one who's veiled and, and is waiting outside for her companion? So she's using a common image of that day that would have been known to them about shepherding. Because if you were a shepherd of sheep, you traveled a lot. You moved your flock around to where there was actually food. And so you might be gone from your family for several days. Well, just like in our day back then, women who were prostitutes knew that men who had been away were usually an easier catch. And so they would go after these shepherds, they would veil themselves, and they'd hang out around the outskirts of those areas, and they'd wait for a shepherd to come out and invite them into their tent. So what she's saying to him is, is am I going to be just like these other women who are lined up out there when you're off at work waiting for an opportunity for you, and i got to be just like them waiting to have any time with you? She's insecure about that. He's the king. She's saying, is your work going to be a greater priority to you than me? And it might just be like everyone else trying to get some of your time. Now look what he says. This is amazing. He does it. He's going to answer her in reverse order. Solomon says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. So he's saying, don't hang around the edges. He says, you follow right behind my tracks and pasture your goats beside the shepherd's tent. He's saying, You're, you have an exclusive place with me. Don't even think about having to hang out here to get time with me. And then he goes on to talk about her beauty. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, let me just recommend, you know, maybe calling your wife a horse nowadays <laughs> isn't going to get you as much as it is going to get Solomon here in this case. Let me just put it that way, okay? But let me explain to you what he's saying, and you'll see why 
This is such a powerful statement. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. That's how they would have decorated even the horses then uh, with great jewelry. And he's saying uh, here, he's comparing her to the mare of Pharaoh's chariots and probably an idiom that would have had great meaning to them. Because here's what happened in their day. Back in their day, first of all, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had the best of horses. So he's saying, you're like his mare, his female horse, his best female horse. And then he says, amongst his chariots. And if you know anything about chariots or war of that time, they always had stallions that pulled the chariots. The male horses pulled the chariots. And so what he's saying is that you're like Pharaoh's mare, you're like the best of mares, and you're like a mare amongst all stallions. Meaning, you're, you got everyone's attention. I'm so focused on you. I don't want to look at these other guys. I want you. You are one in a million. You're all I got in my sights. He's making like the best comparison of her exclusivity and her security in his eyes saying, you're the only one I want. So he immediately addresses both of her concerns. And here's my point that I think we pull out of this, is I will find satisfaction in my sexual relationship when it includes both security and exclusivity. When it includes both security and exclusivity. You see, Shulamite expresses her insecurity in her beauty as well as her insecurity in being exclusive, meaning am I just going to be like the other women or the other people waiting to get your time or do I have a special place in your life? And he immediately affirms both of them. Let me just say this real quick and then I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate it. The sexual function and all the emotional, psychological, and, and spiritual aspects that go with it are designed to function best in an environment of security and exclusivity, period. All this garbage in our modern world that says include all this other stuff in your relationship or have an open relationship or bring these kinds of videos or this kind of stuff in is absolute hogwash. Just read the statistics on it. It does nothing for a relationship. Security and exclusivity is how your body was designed to best respond and function in the area of sexuality. And let's just just stop and think about this at a very practical, simple level to understand how we have bought as a lie. We've bought as a lie today that even Christians think this, that a person who's a virgin is a nerd or a geek and is unexperienced, is a fool. I mean, think of the movie titles that are out there. We mock that nowadays. And yet, in areas of our life that are so much less significant to us, we hold exclusivity at a great high. Let me just give you a couple simple examples. Let's just pretend I was going to give you a car. No cost to you. Any car you wanted. No payment, period. It's yours. And I gave you these options. I, I got a car here that three people have already driven and had for several years. I got one that seven people have driven I got one that's like 15 people have driven. Whew, it's got some wear on it, but I got it here. It's all yours, man. No payments. Or I got a brand spanking new car that no one has ever driven before. You will be its exclusive owner and driver. Do I even need to ask which car you would immediately choose? 
Okay, let me make it a little more graphic for you. How about you go to lunch? A lot of you go to lunch after church. You head over to, say, Texas Roadhouse, and they got steaks on the menu, and, and you bring it out, and the waitress says, hey, I got this steak here that only two people have chewed on before, before you get it. And I got this one over here. You got to check out our sides. I got a regurgitated baked potato for you. Three people chew it up, and they stir it around, and they bring it back up. It's here, man. It's all yours. Or... I mean, I got this menu over here, and these steaks, man, no one's even touched them. They're hot off the grill. Baked potato, but I don't know. Are you interested in that? They're kind of exclusive. You'll be the only one that's ever eaten them. What are you going to choose? When you go to your doctor, you got to have some blood work done. And he goes, hey, got the bin over here. These needles have only been used by five people before I'm going to poke it into you. Then I got the 10 people needles. I got the 20 version over there. Or then I, well, I got some way back over here that no one's used before. Which, which, which needle do you want me to use when I draw your blood? Are you with me? Why is it that in every area of our life, we elevate exclusivity to a great value? And yet when it comes to something so much more important like our personal sexuality, we mock the same value. Are we maybe that messed up as a society? Have we maybe fallen so far from the wisdom that God has so clearly spoken in here that we actually believe that non-security and non-exclusivity is better for us in this area? Let me just drive this home a little bit because this is so important. The easiest way, guys, girls, to kill a sexual relationship is to create an insecure and non-exclusive environment. You want to kill your sexual relationship as fast as you possibly can? Create an insecure environment and a non-exclusive one. Start having sexual relationships with as many people as you can before you get married. Oh, it'll start off great, just like the lighter fluid does. It'll burn hot for a little while, but you will undermine every aspect of what God wants to bless you with going into the future. You want to ruin your sexual relationship in your marriage? Start bringing some pornography into it. Start watching some videos. Start not making it an exclusive relationship that is something that just you and your spouse enjoy, and you will begin to rot away at its very foundation. You want to ruin a sexual relationship? Start dressing up and putting on your best when you go to work and for everyone else. And stop doing that for your spouse, who's the most important and unique relationship in your life. And you'll start undermining it the very thing that you want to be able to enjoy. People, I've, I've tried it other ways. You probably have too. But every time I see these truths, the Bible could not be more true about what makes for a great sexual relationship. Let's watch what happens after Solomon immediately communicates to her his security for her and his exclusivity for her. This is what happens. While the king was on his couch... My nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of this because I might start sweating when we get to this last part. I'm just saying, once security and exclusivity is, is established, you've set the table 
for a healthy sexual relationship. And she's using very sexual language here. The couch was not just like a couch we would have. It was actually like the marriage bed. And, and you can see that in Proverbs 7. Let me just read this to you. In Proverbs 7, there's a, Solomon writes this as well, same kind of language, but he's using it of the adulteress and how she tries to lure a person out. And here's what the adulteress says here when she speaks this kind of language. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. This is a picture he's using of an adulteress and how they try to lure a man into their grip. She's using the same kind of language, but with her husband. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Yeah, you can check. This is the Bible. It's in there. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now he speaks back to her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She speaks back. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Doesn't that just drive you nuts when your wife starts looking at the house or other things in the house when you're right in the middle of an infant? They pop open a magazine. Oh, wouldn't this look beautiful in our bedroom? Come on, honey. I'm just saying, it happened 2,000, 3,000 years ago too, guys, so you just have to bear with it. They can think like in lots of different categories. We get really focused and zoomed in when we're at that point. Okay, it goes on. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Those were common flowers in the, they were beautiful flowers, but very common ones. But look at what he then says. As a lily among brambles, or as a lily among thorns, he says, he elevates her. So is my love among the young women. She speaks back. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. Those were aphrodisiacs in that ancient Near Eastern culture. So she's talking very romantically and very sexually. She's saying, sustain me, feed me with these things that stir my love. And she says, for I am sick with love. And then she says this, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Now picture that. How is that? looking. What would that, for his right hand to be under her head, what position would she have to be in? She has to be laying down. He's not like this, putting it behind her head. It's under her head, and his left arm is embracing her. He is holding her in the sexual position. That's the image of the sexual position, and they are engaging in their first night together. Here's my point for you on this. Do we need any cold water, ushers? All right, I'm just saying. I will find satisfaction in my sexual relationship when I communicate my desires for and delight in my spouse. See, a great sexual relationship for the long haul demands great communication. Show me a marriage that's failed to communicate well, and I'll show you a marriage that's failed to enjoy the gift of sex for the long haul like God's designed it to enjoy. 
This is one reason why God wants us to refrain from sexual relationships until after we're actually married. That in that initial dating season, you don't stir this aspect of the relationship up because it forces you to focus on the foundation of the relationship, which is emotional and spiritual communication, to learn how to understand and know each other and see their character and lay that foundation to be secure, to be exclusive, and develop that there so that when the marriage does come and that commitment is solidified, then you can begin to enjoy that other aspect. But you've laid the foundation for it prior to that. And that needs to continue as the relationship goes on. The communication has to be a significant part of it. And we're going to see that throughout the series. Let's look at the last verse and, and a principle that we'll see again multiple times in this book. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You're going to see this refrain or this statement mentioned several times. And here's, in a nutshell, what it is telling us. I will find sexual or satisfaction in my sexual relationship when I stir up sexual love at the proper time. At the proper time. Here's multiple ways you can apply this, and we'll kind of close with this thought. If I stir up sexual love before I have determined the character of another person... I'll be blind, and I'll make a poor decision. I won't see their character the way I need to. And so this phrase applies to everyone in any season. Don't stir it up until it pleases. It is not pleasing to stir it up until you've established the healthy character of a person and made a commitment to an exclusive relationship that says we'll only enjoy this with each other. And when you start to stir that up, and it's not just the sexual act itself, it's the sexual love. When you cross that line and begin engaging in behavior that's meant to lead towards the act of sex, you've already stirred it up. Let me say this so clearly to young people. This is so important because many of us, myself included, made huge mistakes in this area. Once you turn that aspect of your relationship on, you will rarely ever go back. And once you've stirred it up, you've started building your house on a foundation that is not complete. Trust me, I've had to go back in my own relationship in a sense, and if you've ever had foundation problems before in a real home, you know that it's very expensive and very difficult to jack up a house and get access to a foundation to do the work on it that must be done. I've had to do that in my own marriage because we didn't do that well early on. You don't want to have to do that. And if you can avoid it by not stirring it up at that season until the time comes, you will enjoy that gift much longer than you ever would during the season that you're beginning to stir it up now. And I'm not talking about just sex. I'm talking about any physical touch that would lead in that direction. You can do anything you want that you would do to your sister. Think of it that way. I'm going to show that kind of affection. I'm going to show that kind of tenderness. I'd kiss my sister on the forehead, maybe on the cheek. I'd hold her hand possibly. But when it goes to a sexual aspect, trust me, the engines start very easily. And once you begin that, 
you begin a downhill cycle that's not going to be helpful for your relationship until that's designed to be pleased. The second thing is, if I stir it up at a time when I can't fulfill its desires in a God-honoring manner, I will cause hurt and harm. Okay, this applies to both married or pre-married. When I get into activities that would lead towards sex, but you say, well, but I haven't actually had sex, but I've just done all these other things. How far can I go? You're not pleasing this. You're violating this principle because the reason you do those things like a a sensual kiss or touching or petting is to prepare you for the sexual act. And when you spend a whole relationship engaging in those things and then saying, as long as I don't have sex, and you shut it down at that moment, you basically are leaving incredibly frustrated. And you're setting up a pattern that's horrible because when you do get married, you're not going to have to stop there. But you've spent your whole relationship stopping there that when it actually gets to that point, you're not going to function properly and it's not going to be the joy that it was intended to be because you've practiced it the wrong way for so long. In a marriage, it's saying, don't do this to each other in a marriage. Don't stir one another up without the intention of pleasing it when you can please it in a marriage. That's kind of common sense too. Love your spouse enough to don't start going in that direction with them if you don't plan to, in a sense, take it the whole way. You can do that in the marriage relationship, but it says when you stir it up, don't stir it up until it can be pleased in a sense. It's pleased when it's finished. It's, it's being respectful to one another in how you do that. And if you do stir it up in the proper way in a marriage, it'll be a great blessing. When you steward it the way God intended it, it's a huge blessing. You know, all of us, when we look at this ideal, have probably blown it in this area. And even if you've achieved the outward goal or standard of remaining a virgin until you were married, you probably faltered in your thought life. You may have gotten involved in an emotional or physical relationship that didn't go to that level, but crossed those boundaries. And you, uh, even in your marriage relationship, may have blown it a few times. What's awesome about God is he's given us this wisdom. He also gave us a person who perfectly fulfilled it so that even in our blunders, he can still welcome us. You see, Jesus, when he came to earth, modeled all of these principles of love perfectly for us. He laid the foundation for our security, as we see that here being so important. Our security is in his sacrificial death. You aren't in God's kingdom and out of it, in and out of it completely on your behavior. You're in it because he secured it for you and me. It's based on what he did. It's a love that is so secure, you're never going to experience a more secure love than his. He laid that foundation as the groom for us who is the bride because he loved us that much. Exclusive because it is only his church that will be part of that. It's not every religion, it's not every person, it's not anyone that just lives here is is his bride. It is exclusive to those who have put their faith and trust in him. You are a unique child of God when you step across that line. And his desire and his delight in us is shown all over in Scripture. But maybe one great passage is in John 14 when Jesus says, I'm leaving now, and when I go, I will prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. 
And when that place is prepared, I will come again to take you to where I am. And there we will be together forever. He delights in you, and he desires to be with you. And he is left to prepare a place for you and you and you and you so that he can be with you for all of eternity. And when we're in that place, let me just close with this. It will be filled with God's internal, incredible character and beauty. Don't doubt for one moment it will be filled with that. But it will also be so riddled with an external beauty beyond anything you could imagine that every sensory sensor on your perfect body at that time will be so lit up for all of eternity. It will be a feast forever. It will take forever for you to fully experience everything that that new heaven and earth has for you. If that's our God, and if that's how he's communicated himself, is it that much to ask for us to embrace this vision in such an important area of our lives? So let me leave you this simple challenge. In what area, in what principle, or maybe in all these principles, will you take time to meditate, to ponder, and develop your own personal values and convictions to embrace God's vision for your future sexual relationship or your current sexual relationship. If he loves you that much, if he communicated with you so clearly and has done for you what you could never do for yourself, why would he offer you anything other than your very best in this area of your life? Imagine how your family could be different if you started today to uphold a different vision for sexuality than maybe what was passed down to you? How might your family be different? How might your future be different? That's my prayer for us as a church. And that's my prayer for you and for me as individuals. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you're real with us. And Lord, if we're honest, many of us had fathers, maybe most of us had fathers or mothers who, who just danced around this topic and, and, and were embarrassed to talk about it, and, and rightly so, because most of us are embarrassed to talk about this, but not you. You love us so much, you put a whole book in your word, so available to us. Lord, forgive us that it is... The church today, we've so rarely opened this book in a time when it's so desperately needed. But Lord, we're starting now. So please take these truths and, and burn them in our hearts so that we might have a vision of love that includes you and includes your great love for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray.